welcome to episode two of Behold Her, a monthly podcast that shines a spotlight on women in the world of tabletop. I'm your host, Lisa Chen, and this episode is all about three generations of women who make fun happen in the Dungeons & Dragons official play campaign, The Adventurers League. To any and all organizers out there, this episode is dedicated to you. We'll chat with Deb Berlin, a math and science teacher in Massachusetts, whose own warm welcome into the league motivates her to organize conventions across the Northeast region. Then we'll talk to Fenway Jones, the teen DM, an inspiring young woman who represents the future of D&D in the best of ways. Finally, we'll hear from Misty Vander, an avid dungeon master and player in the Adventurers League, as she tells us how a weekly game night and a clash with kobolds can mean so much more. But first, we have a woman awarded this year's Baldwin Games Lifetime Achievement Award, and it is no wonder. Claire Hoffman is a boss in the world of D&D organized play. With over 20 years of experience running the Living Death and Living Forgotten Realms campaigns, and now serving as the Associate Content Manager for the Adventurers League. You know, you gain a point or two of XP running a 10-year gothic horror campaign with a staff of just yourself. So as a fledgling admin, I'm super excited to talk to you, Claire. Thank you for chatting with me. No problem. Always have to talk about D&D. So to get us started, uh, why don't you tell me when and how you started playing the game? Um, I started playing the game because a acquaintance at work knew I read a lot of fantasy and sci-fi, as well as other genres. And her husband had a game a D&D game he was doing on Saturdays and she wanted someone in the group that um, she knew because it was mostly people he met because he was an army recruiter and that's how I got introduced to D&D and that was in 78. Had you played other tabletop games before or was this totally new to you? Um, Not since I was a kid playing Monopoly and, and you know the basic kid games of the late 50s and early 60s. So no, I had not played an RPG before then. What did you know about D&D at the time? And did it take any convincing? Absolutely zero. I knew nothing about D&D. All, all I knew is she said it was a game where you got to play characters much like I read in my books. I went into it blindly Uh, The DM uh, helped me create a character, a fighter, and we went from there. How was that first experience? Did you know you were hooked right away? I'm not sure I was hooked right away, but it was definitely something different and something I enjoyed doing. I don't know that I ever realized when I was hooked. I just kept meeting people from coincidentally at work um, as I changed jobs and moved around the country a bit. They'd find out, oh, you play D&D? We have a home group. Why don't you come join? Up until the early 90s, that's how I played D&D, mostly at home groups, except for Gen Con. I started going to Gen Con in the mid-80s, and that was my only other D&D experience. As you were playing uh, D&D through the 70s and 80s, was it unusual being a woman playing the game? And did you find yourself with other women in your groups? Were you the only one? Um, The first group, there was already a a young girl playing. And because, I guess, because his wife was the one who got me in the group, I didn't really think about it. Most of the other groups, I was the only, only woman, but because they already knew me from work, it wasn't in... It wasn't any thing that stood out 
And eventually we ended up having more women in the group. The first time I, I actually was the DM, I ran Dragonlance and there was always one other woman in the group as a player, if not two occasionally. So in the home scene, it, it really didn't seem to be that big of a deal. And I kind of got lucky because when I went to Gen Con that first time, I discovered the RPGA. And at the time it was being led by Jean Raby and they had a, well, I wouldn't say it was a huge number of women compared to the gaming population at large for the role-playing games. I think they had a higher percentage of women that were part of the RPGA and, and I'm not quite sure why, but you didn't get quite that much pushback for be or, or notice about, about the, the thing that the only thing that ever got my dander up was one they had tournaments where they gave you characters and you played through a set scenario and so you were judged and you judged each other on how well you played the character that, that they gave you because they had personalities as well one year for some odd reason when they were mustering they said they tried to have they separated all the women so there was one woman in every group and we all were scratching our heads until we got That's to the table. That's weird. Yeah, that was really weird, you know? <laughs> um, and come to find out that all the characters were female. And so they wanted to have one woman at each table. I'm not quite sure why. To me, it would have been fairer if all the women were at the same table. Because no matter what you did, a guy playing a girl was considered role-playing better than a girl playing a girl. Uh, oh, okay. Because you're judged on... We're judged on how well you role-played. That and that's how you got to advance to the next... Because um, these were uh, advancement tournaments. So the you'd play the character in the first round. And the people who... Like the top three players at your table got to play the second round. And then the top one got to play the last round. So that was, that was the probably most annoying thing um during the 80s that that i experienced as, as a player but my first time I, that i dm'd at gen con i walked up to the table and mostly young men in their 18 you know 18 to 22 or so well trained in gen con etiquette because they made sure they left a table on one end uh, a chair on one end for for the dm and i walked up and they said you're our dm and i said yes and they said cool and gave me no problem whatsoever that's awesome yeah i'm not saying everybody in the rpg was an angel in any way shape or form <laughs> you know it's it's a group and there's always going to be someone but i think we were to a certain extent sheltered from a lot of the stuff that went on a number of years later i was a guest at dragon con and we i suggested a panel on women in gaming we did it and my husband was flabbergasted because he thought, oh, it's the 90s. Women are gamers. It's the natural thing. And to find that entire room, in, uh, you know, any room on only panel with women with all these horror stories of how they had to pretend they were guys for online games and the stuff that was happening at stores. And it was just like, yeah, we were in our own little cocoon. Uh, back in the 90s in the RPGA. Wow. 
That is so interesting. And also, I feel like even just in the few interviews I've done so far with Behold Her, I'm talking to other people who are like really young women just getting into the hobby now. And you'd think, well, it's the the 2010s. Women are gamers, like just like your husband thought. Uh, but even they're coming against uh, some people who are making it discouraging for them. And that's shocking to me. Yeah, it, it really is. And it's also one of the reasons why I've made a, a point of trying to be a bit more visible to encourage more women to not not think that it's an odd thing to be a woman gamer. I've been you know, gaming since the late 70s. Uh, I've been running campaigns for uh, working the administration part of the campaigns for over 20 years. And, and you can you know, have a voice and be part of the solution, hopefully. So was that a driving force for getting involved in the RPGA? Uh, how did you land into helping to ad uh, administrate uh, some of those campaigns? No, not really, because like I said, I didn't think it was a, a big issue. My husband was an, uh, worked with uh, Living City, and I occasionally assisted him on some things, but the RPGA started, had a magazine called Polyhedron, and they had a couple articles on a new campaign that they were start, starting based in the Mask of the Red Death. And for those who don't know, Mask of the Red Death is a variant of Ravenloft's, and it's a gothic horror setting, basically European-centric for the most part, set in the 1880s and 90s. And so they had some articles leading up to that. And the first adventures were supposed to be winter fantasy. At the time, I'd been reading a lot of Anne Perry and uh, Elizabeth Peters, who write mysteries uh, set in the eight, 19th century. So I, this really caught my interest. So I said, no, um, instead of running Living City games at winter fantasy, I want to I want to get involved in this. And he said, sure. So I got the rules and really prepped myself. When I got the adventure, I went and looked in my library of costuming books and found some line drawings of what people would be wearing. And I made copies of those pages so I could show the players, you know, who might not know what their characters would be playing, you know, that they were playing would look, you know, their clothing would look like. Started DMing at Winter Fantasy and I and had a great time and the players seemed to have a great time and we continued. So they had said in the article that they were going to do a, have an overarching plot. And you know, if the campaign took off, it would last for 10 years. However, the first couple of ventures happened all in different years. And at Gen Con, the judge, the other DMS and I were talking about things that we wanted to see in the campaign and how, you know, having all these adventures at different years doesn't seem to make sense with having an overarching plot. And they all encouraged me to, to write Robert Weiss, who was then at the, the head of the RPG at the time, about more plot, you know, continuity between the adventures and things of that nature. So I sent him a letter about some of the ideas that we had and, and what I'd like to help and offer with. And he said, fine, get a computer that uh, has internet access and you are now going to be my assistant on this. Uh, he started calling me his living death guru um, <laughs> for history and plot continuity. And 
So that was uh, September of 96. And shortly in December that year is when TSR went bankrupt. And in January, he said, okay, they're really trimming down um, the RPG budget and, and, and staff. I'm going to be the only one. And they've already laid off everybody else. And uh, if you want Living Death to continue, you have to take over complete control of the campaign. All I'll do is check and make sure that the treasure and, and XP is what we had agreed and that you haven't done anything code of conduct wise, but you're responsible for everything. And I said, okay. <laughs> <laughs> That's how I ended up running Living Death Campaign for 10 years. Really got thrown in the deep end. Yes. And at the time, people who knew me knew I hadn't written many adventures by that time. But I still said, I don't care if Robert lets you wait until like two months before the con, you will hit my deadlines or your adventure won't go, including those of my friends. And they went, okay. But I got away with it. Um, and I improved my editing skills and my writing skills. And I dragooned my husband into writing adventures, sometimes with not much notice. <laughs> but... Uh, we managed to have an overarching plot, and people seemed to have been happy. It was a small campaign. I don't think we ever hit a 1,000 players, but we made our 10 years. What do you think uh, was the most challenging aspect of running that campaign? The most challenging aspect probably was the fact that I really didn't have a staff. <laughs> Um, so if something was going to get done, I had to do it during that, the campaign, there was a change from second edition to third. And by this time we're under wizards. And at first the thought was that we weren't going to have to, to change because we only had so many years, uh, still to run. And they, uh, the year before, um, they had me do like a player's guide. So people would have the you know the rules still fresh but then there was a reconsideration of that fact so i then i had to write a d20 basically version of mask of the red death for third edition so that the campaign could continue to the end that was probably the biggest challenge in trying to keep the campaign moving forward um while i'm rewriting the rules the next hardest thing was the final year. Authors would come up with an idea for a standalone adventure or a trilogy, and I'd cock them into turning it into one adventure per year because I had a 10-year campaign I wanted to fill. And so we're, last year, okay, everybody, we need to do finales. We need to tie these together. And who all wants to work on, on the final adventure? And everybody said, oh, no, we'll, we'll finalize all our storylines, but we all want to play it, so... You and Keith, my husband, can write the finale all by your lonesomes. You're like, oh, okay. It sounds like you were wearing every hat imaginable. Um, yeah. Well, we also, because Master of Death was a variant, we had um, a database of the characters. When, they, when people played, they had to put in information on a sheet their character, what their class was, what their basic stats were. Uh, I had someone create a, a database for me so I could fill it in. 
and find out, okay, this author wants to have this debilitating disease that takes so long, the adventure is so long, what's the average con of the characters? You know, is this going to create a TPK? Oh, you know, that kind of thing had to be looked because magic was very, very rare and very unreliable being able to judge. You know, it's a horror campaign. So if 30% of the tables failed, I'm not worried about it. But if 100% of the tables fail, that's a problem. If you're going to have a long horror campaign, you know, gothic horror, you need to torment them, but not kill them. How do you strike that balance? Um, it's difficult, and it's and in an era where there ha- is guns and no armor, um, it becomes very difficult. That uh, set of rules had a thing for guns, where the damage was a d6, and if you rolled a six, you got to re-roll that dice again. So, one gunshot might only do three. The next time, you, if your sixes keep going, you could do thirty-six, fifty damage with no warning same gun same accuracy same person you hit but it does a heck of a lot more damage and so you you getting that balance was often tricky i'm curious since you spent those 10 years with living death uh when curse of strahd was released and they reintroduced Gothic Horror to 5e. Were you really excited about that, or are you super done uh, with that genre? See, the difference is I came into it from the Gothic side, not the horror side. I don't really read or go to a lot of horror movies. Even when I was back when I was a young woman, young girl, I read a lot of Gothic, you know, Dauphine de Maurier and Phyllis Whitney at the time wrote a lot of these dark novels. It's not so much that I'm done with it as with doing the same thing over doesn't excite me. You know, I've, I've, I've ran Living Death. We ran Mass of the Red Death. There are ways you could, you know, start it again. Um, but 5th E really, much like the third edition, really isn't, I don't think, set up or masked in that Part of the premise there was that you you were a regular person who then these things happen to, to, and then you start gaining abilities and things. Everybody had called kits, which means you might be a sailor that, or a, a baker or a servant. And that, that was how you started out. And your adventuring type things only improved later as you get, went up. So converting 5e into the into mass because mass was a variant of ravenloft so it's a variant of a variant of a game system so that it's a it's a little difficult to conceptualize i think and i've been a forgotten realms fan for a fair number of years so more interested in going forward in that on that note of moving on uh, to the Forgotten Realms and moving forward, uh, talk to me about how you uh, ended up uh, being involved in the Adventurers League. There was a period in between. Um, everybody thought I was going to take an entire year off, and so did I. And then they announced that they were doing a new edition of D&D, 4E, at the one Gen Con I wasn't at because I was going through chemo uh, for breast cancer. And they were announcing that you know, they're going to take applications for 
campaign administrators and my husband looked at me and went, oh no. <laughs> and I said, well, it would give me something else to think about. But I was concerned, you know, since I'd still be going through chemo and radiation in the run up to the, to the start of the campaign, that I wouldn't be able to handle it by myself. So we applied to be writing directors together. His job was getting a little bit busier, but uh, more stressful, but at the time he, he could do it. And so we were the co-writing directors for Living Forgotten Realms up until about the last 18 months of the, the campaign, at which point I became a global administrator for LFR. Then fifth edition came out and the one job ended and then I applied and said, no, I'm not really looking to run the campaign, uh, but I'd like to help. They said, oh, good. You could help Travis. It, it was a transition from one, one Forgotten Realms campaign to the other. You touched on this uh, a little bit earlier in this conversation, but I did want to ask, like, what does it mean to you personally being a woman in gaming? I'm so glad to see more women playing because I think it's, it's getting them involved because I know that it's something they'd enjoy doing. One of my regrets during Living Death was I I thought we should advertise in the back of uh, novels about the 1890s and the Gothic to get more people, more women playing. We had, I'd say, a good 40 to 50% of the players for Living Death were actually women because Gothic horror is kind of one of those genres that's often, shall we say, written with an eye to a woman audience. Also, you know, hearing all these tales about pushback for women in gaming gets me really annoyed. It's important to me, I think, to get out there and go, no, guys, you have not had a lock on this hobby. It's not been just you. There have been women um, such as Jean Raby and, and Linda, Linda Beagle and Laura Hickman that have been in gaming at the table for years, you're just trying to erase what we've, we've all done, and, and I won't put up with that. And I want the next generation to be able to have it without having to hassle with gatekeepers. And Do you have advice for anyone if they, if they show up to their friendly local store and don't feel welcome, or even like if they're at a convention and someone is making their D&D experience kind of discouraging, what advice would you give those women? that's the probably the hardest thing for me to do because I think some of that has to do with your own personality how you handle it as as many a gamer who maybe tried to get away with something will tell you that's been at my table if you do something and Claire starts looking at you over her glasses or under them you're in trouble <laughs> uh, I'm not one to suffer people getting out of line and I had, but I had an advantage in that I was, a, you know, I was already 23, 24 when I started gaming and I had a sense of myself, which I didn't let anybody else take away. And, and that kind of confidence isn't something a, you know, you have when you're 16 or 17 or 18 and just getting into gaming. So I don't know that I can really give a whole lot of help on that. I think my better use is by getting out there and talking to women so that they know that there are others in the gaming that you can survive and thrive. 
As we wind down, Claire, if people want to find you, is there anywhere on the interwebs that they're able to do so? I'm on Twitter at DragonViewClaire, and the view is just VU, and I'm on Facebook as myself. Uh, well, Claire, thank you again uh, for taking the time to chat with me, I guess, as the second female Adventurers League administrator now. I definitely thought it was, it was really cool seeing you in the roster, and I'm glad I got to learn more about you. Well, thank you. I'm glad, I'm glad to have another woman on board. Deb Berlin is the Vice President and Convention Coordinator for the Roll Initiative, a nonprofit expanding gaming communities through organizing small store events and Dungeons and Dragons at conventions like PAX East and the inaugural PAX Unplugged last November. Hello, Deb. Welcome back from PAX East. How are you doing? I'm doing great. It was a really fun convention and, you know, recovering from them is always a challenge going back to work. Yeah, transitioning uh, to life that isn't full-time D&D can be hard. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, Deb, tell me, how did you get into D&D and how did you get involved with the Adventurers League? I didn't start playing D&D &D until 2015, actually. I got started because I had a whole group of friends who I would go over and play games with at Night Moves Cafe in Brookline, which is a little board game cafe. And I kind of got to know that group of people, and it was a totally new and exciting group of friends. And a lot of them were playing Adventures League frequently together. So I started joining their games around then, and that was really my first experience with Dungeons & Dragons, period. I had played a few home games, but I didn't really hold on to any of them. So that was really great. And the DMs there were really helpful for, you know, teaching me how to play and like get, helping me. I decided to be a bard as my first character, mm -hmm. um, which is you, you have a lot to learn. <laughs> um, but it was super fun. And like, I still love that character and I still love that group of friends. And they really introduced me to D&D &D, and the rest is history. I feel like a lot of the folks that I chat with for Behold Her will have one experience and they're not necessarily hooked right away. And then they'll have this really amazing experience and they know D&D &D is for them. Uh, was there anything that you think stood out about playing with that particular group that really hooked you? I was like really nervous to play at first. I was playing with my boyfriend and all of his friends and they were all really passionate about D&D &D and had a lot of background information and like just kind of knew what to do right away. And I was going in and I was like, this is a D20? Okay, good. I'll roll this one. And like, I just, I have memories of like accidentally rolling D12s instead of D20s. Ha having people be like, all right, it's okay. Like, just do this one instead and add these numbers to it. And like, I have something where I just get really nervous about things and, you know, don't always think where that I'm in the right place or I get embarrassed that I don't know something or don't pick it up quickly enough. And the people there were so supportive of my learning D&D &D and like kind of encouraged me to keep going. And, and then, you know, we had like this really intense summer where we were just like running through the first few seasons of Adventures League. Then I remember like my starting to like really get into the role-playing thing and like I had this my bard Lavinia was you know really interested in all like the different like kind of characters you get to know um through the Adventures League stories that piece of it kept me pulled in and had me wanting to come back for more 
So whereas I started really nervous, my first RPG experience was with a Call of Cthulhu, and I like totally didn't get how to roleplay it. But then I moved on to this D&D situation and had all these really supportive other players and DMs. And that kind of, you know, helped me become comfortable with it and want to stay. That is amazing that you had this community that was so welcoming. And also, I'm so jealous that you got to power through uh, the first few seasons of AL, like back to back, it sounds like. Yeah, basically. It felt like it, certainly. We were playing multiple times a week, getting together. Sometimes we'd be like, okay, we're going to do this module, and then we're going to do dinner, and then we'll do another mod. Um, we were really into it. It was intense, but it was great. And I'm a teacher, so like having something to do that will like, you know, get me going during the summer is awesome. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll also say that D12 versus D20, that is everyone, I think, makes that mistake. <laughs> Very <laughs> relatable. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so what then made you want to be an organizer? Did you did you transition into DMing first? So I have actually never DM'd. Um, <gasps> yes. I know. Um, with the exception of like pretending to know what I'm doing in front of like a room full of students. But that's my job every day. So that I can do. <laughs> um, what brought me to organizing was that I guess I was watching my friends do it. I mean, I had a lot of friends who were local coordinators and I was getting to know that community and like seeing them run conventions around here. And then they started kind of like pulling back from the local coordinator program, the local coordinator program disbanded. And then we had a group of people who said, all right, we still want to be able to have resources and run conventions in this area. Let's do this. And I knew all of them. I went to one of their meetings and I was listening to the challenges they were facing. And I had already had a reasonable amount of experience organizing people just from volunteer work, high school, college, all across the board. And it's, you know, every organizations, no matter what they're doing, tend to face similar challenges. And so I had experience that kind of said, okay, I can help these people. I really like these people. I know these people. Let's see what I can bring to this. So I just sat in on a meeting, raised my hand, um, which is funny because we were in a restaurant, um, and said, I have something to say. Let me tell you what I have, like what I'm thinking about. And they listened to me, which was shocking to me because I was sitting in a room full of, you know, former local coordinators. They were all like a really big deal for me. I felt like I was in a room full of celebrities. And they listened to me and they heard what I said and they ended up using some of what I said. And then I heard from them like two weeks later that they wanted me to help out with the organization a little more. I hear from lots of people that sometimes they're nervous about getting really involved with their communities. They feel like they need to have this wealth of experience and have had to have played since the Redbox days. And that's totally not true. Yeah, absolutely. And the Northeast region, I guess, the area like around Boston and New Hampshire where I'm playing Everyone is so welcoming. People come from totally different perspectives. I hear the maps and minis versus theater of the the mind debate like every few weeks, basically. And so like we have a lot of different opinions, but everyone is so passionate about the hobby and making sure that people that it's accessible to people, making sure that, you know, people feel heard, like people come in and feel like they have somewhere to be. I keep hearing from people now in my current role that you know, they move up here and the way they make friends or meet new people or find something to do when they're not doing their job that they moved here for is through Adventures League. And that was something I didn't realize Adventures League could do when I first started, was bringing communities and people together, you know, making people new gr- groups of friends. And uh, under the same, like, 
idea, like the people I played with at Night Moves when I very beginning first started are close friends of mine now. And many of them actually volunteered with us at PAX East over the weekend. It's been really great to watch some of them grow up from players into really great DMs. Um, some of them just DM'd for the first time, like very recently, and then came to PAX and their players loved them. And that's like helping them grow as well. So just seeing how the community embraces other people who are part of this is like, it, it's inspiring to me. The group we're talking about is the Role Initiative. Uh, tell me a little bit about uh, what your role is there. So I am the vice president and convention coordinator of the Role Initiative. Convention coordinator, I think, is the more external important piece of what I do. I'm communicating with conventions and helping them figure out how to get Adventurers League going. I'm organizing the Adventurers League section of conventions. I'm there at the conventions making sure that things run smoothly or doing my best to ensure that at least. I'm helping, you know, bring people in. I'm helping empower volunteers and make people who are new feel like they have something to contribute and can be a positive member of this community. I'm also there, like, to be that smiling face, to be that welcoming person. And I don't know, I kind of like to think that I'm there to inspire other people to become, like, very involved. Um, we had brand new volunteers this past weekend and some people who had never played before who are excited to come to a game day with us this weekend. I talk about this everywhere I go. I talk about Adventures League all the time. I go to work and I talk about I go to work at the school where I work and I talk about Adventures League and I have students who are like, when I'm in college, I want to play Adventures League um, and things like that. And like my convention coordinator job is like really my passion. I love organizing people. I love helping groups of people figure out like the logistics of managing you know, all of these players who are coming in and how to make it run smoothly and how to make sure that we're communicating the information that people need to be successful and informed at conventions. Conventions never run smoothly. Nothing ever, like, we don't ever have everything go according to plan. But what do we do with the information when we know it's not going according to plan? That's really what changes the player experience. We also know that some conventions are have more resources than others. And how do we work with a convention that has no resources versus a convention that can provide all sorts of things for their volunteers? That's where I come in for the role initiative, communicating and organizing, doing logistics, things that for some people sound really not so fun. But for me, it's like, it's such a great part of my life to be able to help, you know, make this happen. You are a problem solver. That's what I try to be. <laughs> What would you say is the most challenging thing you've come up against as a con organizer? I think there are two different sides of it. Um, on a personal level, I think that I still have a little bit of the imposter syndrome going on. You know, I have this, I've been, my, I, the first convention I ran, like helped admin, wasn't even part of the like organizational backbone, was about a year ago. Um, so everything's happening really quickly, and I'm still not totally convinced that I'm qualified for my job all the time. So people tell me that I'm quite good at it. So I'm, you know, working on that one. And like the fact that I don't know how to DM, you know, I, means that I can't always be a resource for our volunteers who are DMs or new DMs. I always, but I do find them a good person to talk to. As an organization, I'd say that the biggest challenge I'm seeing is that we have a lot of people, we have a really great problem. Um, we have a lot of people who are interested in working with us people who want us to write con-created content for them, or people who want us to help them with their convention logistics, or people who want us to come up and uh, do the admin side of their convention and, you know, 
coordinate volunteers and find them DMs and all these things. None of this in itself is a problem, but we are still a very new organization and the resources we have are still evolving. So right now, one of the things I'm currently working on is figuring out like what software to use to keep my volunteer databases working effectively and things like that. For now, I've been doing a lot of things basically by hand. We're still growing and, and I think we'll keep growing because we have so many people reaching out to us who are hearing about what we've been doing. So as we grow, we have to evolve how we approach things. Tell me a little bit about how your approach would be different for that small local convention that doesn't have a lot of resources and how that differs from something huge, like maybe one of the PAXs that you guys have helped organize. Um, from my perspective, it, a lot of it has to do with what we can do for our volunteers and like the way the con looks for volunteers. From for a player, no matter what, basically, they're coming, they're coming to play a game. Either they're signing up beforehand or they're coming and like getting in line and being placed at a table. So it doesn't really look different from a player's perspective for the most part. Although if you want, we can talk about the difference between tabletop cons and industry cons. But what what I really think it changes for is how we approach volunteer management and uh, what we can get for our DMs and what the experience is like for our DMs. With a smaller convention, you know, I want to make sure that the volunteers' needs are being met, but I also tend to, like with a really small local con, I'm going to be looking at more local volunteers. With something like a PAX, you know, we can draw people from further further away and they get really excited to come to the convention. And so that in itself is like a reward for them. And then we're talking about, you know, what are they getting for it? But we're also talking about just the difference in, for me, from my perspective, managing a spreadsheet of 10 people versus managing a spreadsheet of 70 people, um, where I plan out each slot and plan out a schedule and figure out what mods are being run and figure out, I mean, I don't do this on my own. We have a great team. Eric Bowen and Garrett Cologne both helped me with packs a whole bunch because I was actually out of the country for most of that. But we're looking at trying to figure out how to schedule everyone in a way that makes sense for them. We want to make sure that, you know, something we're working on is figuring out if there's a way to automatically have it so that people aren't closing and finishing a game at midnight and then opening the next morning at an early game. At a smaller con, you tend to not run as many tables and it becomes less of an issue because people are local. At a bigger con, it can be a little more of a challenge. We also think about what sort of content we're running at a con. Intro content versus like, can we do tier two, tier three? If we're doing con-created content, that's a whole different beast. And we're saying, okay, do we want to do something that like fits the theme of the convention? Like, I wouldn't even say that I have like boxes I can put each con in. I can, I can say that like, you know, this is an industry con, but I can also say this is a small industry con versus a big industry con. And we haven't found two cons that work exactly the same way yet. Um, so we kind of just have a list of questions we can ask ourselves. What are we getting from the convention and what are we getting doing for the convention? What do we want the player experience to look like and what do we want the DM experience to look like? What are we asking our volunteers to do and what do we need to do for them? I'm finding it really fascinating listening to you. It's like you've pulled back the curtain and I knew a lot of work goes into organizing, especially for conventions because of scale, but there's a lot of deliberate thought you put into the type of con, the audience, the DMs that you're drawing from. Are they local people coming to represent their region or are you pulling awesome DMs from all over? Uh, that's really, really cool. And oh my gosh, your job sounds so tough. <laughs> it's actually really fun. It's so rewarding. 
there's nothing as rewarding as when a new player comes in and has a blast with one of our DMs. Or even when we're facing like a huge line of people that can be really challenging and people don't love waiting in line. But when they come out of that and still say the experience was positive, I love that. Um, when I started doing convention coordination position, I didn't know how to run a convention. I mean, I came into it, I had some ideas and things that I thought would be useful from what I had seen, but it was really all about, okay, what can I learn from other people? I went to a whole bunch of conventions and saw how other people ran things. I said, okay, how can we expand the community and our reach? I said, can I make an idiot's guide to running conventions? And that's basically what I made for myself. I was the idiot there, but I was the, I needed a guide and I needed a step-by-step, here's a calendar of the year and here's what you need to do each month. And, you know, that's kind of my goal here is to make make it so that people who are interested in running a convention, people who are interested in bringing Adventures League to their event can have an idea of what they need to do so that it's less of a, oh, I need to ask a thousand different questions to one person. And instead you can have someone else already asked all those questions. Here's the information they got. Do you have a favorite part of what you do? Or is there a recent story that comes to mind that just reminds you, this is why I do all of this? The people are always my favorite part, the community. My favorite moment of PAX, I think, was I walked up to a table of a fairly new DM who actually came from Night Moves uh, with us. So usually you go to a table and the you know DM has their folder with char- like pre-generated characters and log sheets and things like that, and maybe some dice that people can borrow. But this DM had set up a table with a dice bag and a set of dice at each seat so that when their t- players came in, that's what they walked into. And like seeing people really take ownership of the hobby, I love that. My other favorite part is seeing brand new players come in. We had a whole bunch of people at PAX who had never played a single RPG before and came out of it totally excited, asking where they could play locally, asking what other conventions they could go to, what they can do with their character. And it becomes a family affair. You know, we have, you know, parents and their children coming out and playing together. And we had a table that was just one family, you know, a mom, a dad, and some kids. They love it. And it becomes a family adventure, no pun intended. I mean, that's really what organizers especially adventurers league organizers are doing at the end of the day even if it's just a store event or this huge convention it's the community that you're organizing really yeah that's exactly what it is and community organizing you know sometimes you don't realize that what you're doing is organizing a community but when you're getting people together and doing something that makes them happy you're going to have people bonding with each other and people who you know maybe feel like they're shy or socially awkward making new friends with somebody who's more gregarious and outgoing and you're making people like you're seeing people make connections it's so important and so wonderful and i just love that adventurers league can do that what has your experience been as a woman in tabletop rpgs i've honestly found it to be generally welcoming um I've heard some, you know, scary stories from other people, but I've never, I've hardly experienced anything except for welcoming. Being able to talk about things from my perspective as an organizer, I like to think that I'm affecting the community. I'm working with like a lot of people who grew up in a different time period than I did, or people who have different background, who maybe, you know, I don't know, aren't used to being with somebody who's brand new or somebody who's female and like having become more more a part of the community and being there I can I can quietly draw attention to accessibility and diversity concerns making sure that you know we have 10 by 10 blocks of space and tables that barely fit in there how can we get someone with a wheelchair over there to be able to fit in how can we make it so that our mods represent our player base I love our community I find it to be very welcoming I have not had a bad experience but I also want to be there as a resource for anyone who does you know 
And I want to make sure that people who come to our tables at the Roll Initiative can feel that our mission is to support diversity and make RPGs, make Adventures League feel like a safe space for people. I'm so glad that we have you as an organizer. Is there anything that I didn't ask you that you wanted to talk about? Um, Every character has a backstory. Every character and every mod has a backstory in addition to every person's character that they're building and like where are those characters coming from and how do they relate to the other characters there that's what makes D interesting in some ways for me i mean i obviously like rolling dice and fighting things but and that is how our community builds as well everyone is bringing something to the table so to speak and you know we need to just keep in mind that not everybody is bringing the same thing and what every like everybody is an asset every single person who comes to your event every single person who volunteers with you every single person who comes and asks a question see what you can learn from people because that's what that's what it's all about so before we go uh, if people wanted to find you on the interwebs follow what you're doing follow what the role initiative is doing how can they do that the role initiative is on social media on facebook and twitter if you search you know, facebook.com slash the role initiative and on Twitter, our username, whatever it is, I don't know how to Twitter is um, at underscore role initiative. If they're looking for me, they can send me an email at uh, conventions at the role initiative, R O L E. Yes, it's a pun uh, initiative uh, org. If you're interested in talking about conventions or bouncing ideas off or asking questions, I encourage you to get in touch. Awesome. Deb, thank you so much for carving some time out after I'm sure you're exhausted uh, from cons and everything going on. Oh man, I really want to experience the magic of Dungeons and Dragons, but I'm a cave hermit who made an oath never to speak to other people again. And I want to watch a classic fantasy series like Lord of the Rings or Game of Thrones, but I can't stand the sight of human faces. Well, I want to relive the magic of make-believe, the humor of a preschool-aged child, and the genuine camaraderie of nearly 10 years of friendship through only my ears, but I don't know how. <laughs> you ignorant fools. You don't even know about Dames and Dragons. <gasps> what? Dames and Dragons, updated every second Monday wherever podcasts are sold. Fenway Jones is the teen DM. At 15 years old, she already is a pillar of her local D&D community, a beloved dungeon master, and now a burgeoning event organizer. Channeling the pain of a personal loss to make the world a better place, Fenway is organizing a charity game day event to benefit suicide prevention. Jasper's game day is taking place April 21st at Siege Games in Howell, Michigan. I'll let Fenway tell you more. Fenway Jones, Teen DM, I'm so excited to chat with you today for Beholder. I'm excited to be here. Uh, So Fenway, tell me, when and how did you start playing Dungeons & Dragons? I started playing Dungeons & Dragons when I was about 11, and I started playing with some family friends and my dad. It just started out as just a fun little game to have as a hobby. I had this character named Talia. 
she had it was a gnome who was a rogue and i had a lot of fun with her uh she went went through barovia went through um the mines lost mines of thumdalver so she went through a lot of adventures and became a very high level rogue i got to see things through her eyes and be able to have a lot of fun with my friends and my dad what did you find you liked best about playing the game and getting to beat Talia? I really liked the role-playing aspect of everything. To become the diplomat, to become the sneaky little young girl who she was. What made you decide then uh, to try the other side of the screen and be a dungeon master? My dad and I had just started at a new game store, and there was a lot of people there. So my dad asked me if I would like to DM for a table of students. I was reluctant at first, and then I started it, which got me into the loving, uh, the loving aspect of DMing. So you said you were reluctant. Were you nervous? And is there anything that you did to sort of combat that your first time? I was definitely nervous. I was nervous more about the role-playing and the describing aspect of DMing because I wasn't sure how my players would take my version of everything. And uh, the first time I DM'd, I was very confident while playing combat, but I was a little shut down when I role-played, and I just worked with my dad through that, which got me into being more confident when I was role-playing and describing things you say shut down is that more of an internal thing um that you struggled with or was there something you came up against with the players that you had at your table initially it was more of being nervous that they weren't going to like having a teen dm it's uh, there's i have i had never seen a female dm before and there was that um aspect of things as well Wow. I mean, I talk a lot about how if you go to a friendly local game store, there's lots and lots of guys at stores. Um, so even just as a an adult female player, being there, you give other women who come in confidence to even play the game. But here you are, maybe not having a role model who necessarily looks like you or that you directly relate to, but you're being that role model. Yeah, that was what I had hoped to be. Uh, what elements of the game, as you've DM'd more and more, are you think most important to you? How would you describe your style? My style is all about the fun and the story aspect of everything. Being part of the group, being able to laugh and talk with the, my players as if I was actually one of the players as well. So how would you describe your experience as a young woman in the hobby? I know you mentioned that there wasn't another woman DM um, and you were nervous about people having a DM who's younger. Uh, what was the actual experience like? And people were very surprised when they learned I was their DM because like when I came up to the table, everybody started looking around for where the DM was. And I introduced myself as the DM, and the look of surprise, it was more on the older men's faces um, when I said I was the DM. But uh, it was 
very they were very surprised when they heard I was the DM. How did that make you feel? It made me feel proud that I was able to be this role model for women and teens when DMing. You've mentioned that getting more girls and women into the hobby is a passion for you. What are some things that you're doing to make that happen? Well, in the very first game store that I went to, which was before Zeej Games, there were very few women that came and played. And as I started DMing and playing, I noticed a lot more women coming to play at my table and coming to see me DM and that sort of thing. And then I went to Zeej Games, which is run by two female owners, which is very unusual for the gaming world. And so there's a lot more women there, and I've just promoted teen DMing and women DMing. Um, Are there other teen DMs at Zeej Games now? There are not. Uh, not yet. There are a few that have taken the DM class that we require our DMs to take before we start DMing. There's a DM class? Yes. Uh, what sort of things do they teach, and is that a course that you had to go through as well? I have gone through it a couple times. However, I've also helped my dad run it. And we talk about just how to keep your players interacting and how to do the different aspects of DMing and do them well. Are there any particular tips that come to mind that you think are maybe lesser known? Well, one thing for DMing is if you stand up, I mean, people may know this, but if you stand up, people's eyes draw to you. So you just automatically take control of the table that way. So I use that a lot um, for being a shorter girl myself. Uh, they pe- people don't necessarily pay attention to me as well as they would if I wasn't standing up. Like, they pay more attention to me while I'm standing up than I'm sitting down. That is so interesting, because, Fenway, let me tell you, I'm also a shorter woman, and I stand when I DM, and I don't even know why I do it. But I think that that's why def- you definitely do feel like you're kind of taking control of the table a little bit more than when you're like slumped hidden by your dm screen yeah that's such a cool tip (laughs) is there anything else that you found particularly useful to you i have definitely found talking a little uh, louder than people might expect because i've had a lot of people who have a uh hearing like hear poorly so i find speaking much louder than uh just the regular voice helps as well how do your other friends react? Do they know that you play Dungeons and Dragons and it's a passion of yours? Uh, they do. The fir- their first reaction was, what a nerd. But uh, they've kind of now uh, just gotten used to it. And I have a few friends who I play, um, some- I play with sometimes. Uh, do you have any advice that you would give people who are trying to get into the hobby, um, who are coming up against negativity? I would just say that it's a space for you as well, and it's a space for you to come and have fun. D&D is for everyone. Don't let people who don't want you to be there discourage you from that. Amazing. Um, So let's talk some more about this very special event that you have coming up, uh, Jasper's Game Day. Can you tell me what inspired this event? This event was inspired by uh, the fact that I have had two friends commit suicide over the past year, and it has just been hard 
for me, my family, and the people around me. So I developed a passion for raising awareness for suicide prevention. And so it's a charity event where all of the proceeds will go to Barb Smith Suicide Resource and Response Network. And that's none of the expenses for paying for the event will be taken out of the donations. I just find that so inspiring that you've taken two losses and you have my condolences. That would be difficult for anybody, but you've taken these energy, your energy to create something really wonderful to help others. Yeah, and I was hoping to be able to use the fact that I have this pain and be able to stop other people from having that pain. Uh, for people who are buying tickets to the event, uh, what can they expect from it? There will be two different seminars. Uh, the writing seminar will be run by Alan Patrick, Satine Phoenix, and Rudy Rutenberg. And the DM seminar will be run by Lucas Carell, Satine Phoenix, and Rudy Rutenberg. Those are some really big names in the community that you've been able to draw. Yes. Satine uh, is my mentor, and I was introduced to her through Alan, um, and we've seen each other a couple times and FaceTime regularly. Can you tell me, actually, if, if you're comfortable sharing it a little bit about that mentoring relationship? Uh, for sure. So I am writing a, uh adventure for my local game store so we can have it uh, debut at one of our events. And uh, I am a sponsor for her on Patreon. And so she is helping me write my adventure and has and has recently been helping me uh, run this event. Is the adventure going to be part of the Adventurers League like, through the CCC program? I hope so. I'm hoping to get it pr- uh, approved uh, that is spectacular, and I'm really hoping that that happens. But uh, getting back to your event, what other things uh, will be going on on the game day? I know you mentioned some seminars. Will there be just games that people can play as well? Yes. During the seminars, the day is broken up into three different slots. Uh, the first slot will be the DM seminar, and then outside of that room, there will be about eight tables set up for people to play games and we have our account on warhorn for people to sign up and then it'll be the same thing during the second slot outside of the writing seminar as well and then the third slot we have the season one epic oh wow you guys will have an epic as well yes we will well, that is amazing, and I'm really bummed that I personally am not able to attend. And I imagine that just because of distance and travel, it might be difficult for some other people, um, even though they really are passionate about the cause. If people want to contribute, is there a way for them to do so? Yes, there is. I have a CrowdRise account that I have set up. It is a donation website that allows you to go on there, donate. Uh, it'll send me a notification and I can, uh, it'll send it to the charity. Uh, the URL is tinyurl.com slash Jasper's Game. If people want to find you, either to learn more about Jasper's Game Day or just see uh, what you are doing uh, as the teen DM, uh, how can they track you down? The only social media I use for D&D related things is my Twitter, and it is uh, M-I underscore A-L-D-N-D. I find you 
so inspiring and you fill me with a lot of hope about the future of this hobby. Thank you, Fenway, for everything that you do. Well, thank you for that and thank you for having me on here. Oh, you're very welcome. Again, if you can't make it to Jasper's game day, consider a donation from afar instead. Go to tinyurl.com slash jaspersgame. Misty Vander is a blogger at aspiringhalfling.com, where she writes tabletop product reviews, but also treats us to her evocative prose describing her experiences playing tabletop RPGs. Through posts like An Outcast Sanctuary and Honey, Let the Real Gamers Play, Misty paints a picture of the good, the bad, and the ugly of the gaming world. Today she shares in her own words and voice how a weekly Adventurer's League game is more than rolling dice. It's escape, it's catharsis, it's victory. As I entered into the shop, the stale stench of sweat and forced air overwhelmed me. I exhaled a small smirk gracing my lips. It smelled comforting. The friendly local game store, Dueling Grounds, had reached a steady point on its Dungeons & Dragons Adventurers League night. I had been there at the beginning, the first Tuesday it all started, and I'd be damned if I ever had to miss one. It was becoming the reprieve in my week. Sitting down at my usual table, greeting the party members and Dungeon Master, I suddenly wasn't misty anymore. I wasn't a business owner, an educator, a mother to a disabled child, struggling to pay bills, struggling to catch a gasp of air as I flailed endlessly in the water of my life. I was Aether Darrow, the strong, independent wood elf ranger, level 4. Aether was a very special creation. As my life had become increasingly political, I used Aether as an exploration of the conservative values and viewpoints I simply did not understand. I tried to see through their eyes perhaps to better explore my own beliefs. And she was lethal. With her magical longbow, she decimated from a distance, her arrows spluttering to sharp shards as they always hit their mark. Our session was well-paced. The dungeon master, Dan, was always good at giving us the time to act on our own as well as move the story along. Nearing the end of the game, it was a complete mess. Aether had been less accepting of races as she had begun her adventure many levels ago, but now, she was beginning to realize that it wasn't the race that defined the individual. She was becoming tolerant of her party members and a bit less hostile to individuals she had never met. But kobolds, dragonborns, anyone resembling dragonkin. Aether winced. The thought of anyone with that tainting their blood haunted her. Rage and fear would flood her body as her burn-scarred arm acted as a vicious memory to what dragons were capable of. Every time Aether set her piercing green eyes on anything that had the semblance of a dragon, the images of her home and her family being burned came crashing to the forefront of her mind. It was too much to bear. They were simply not to be trusted. A party member had set a portion of the cave alight at this point. The dragon in its depths had been slain, but a small army of kobolds, commoners among them, were between the party and their safe exit. They were reasoned with, bargained down by the dwarf paladin Thorgan and the human rogue John. The kobolds surrendered to them. 
They laid down their weapons and swore to be escorted as prisoners. Aether watched her comrades rescuing these undeserving creatures, their memories rushing forward and the hypocrisy from the party boiled hatred in her belly. Hours prior, they had been cutting kobold feet off their corpses as a bounty. I paused the game, as Misty. We were hurrying out through a small tunnel, only about ten feet wide, and I wanted to make a decision. As a person, as somebody who could never go out of their way to harm somebody else, I felt dirty, even bringing it up. But I also felt strong. This wasn't real life. But to me, in my head, those kobold prisoners were me. They were being choked out of their home by smoke, threatened by men stronger and better than they were. The physically small and meek were being intimidated. I knew as Misty all too well what this felt like. To be trapped somewhere, suffocating, and the only way out is to do what they tell you to. To give up. To give in. So I did what I have had done to me before. I wanted to trap them all. I wanted to feel in power for once. But also in the back of my head, I wanted to watch the small kobolds win over my character's maliciousness the way I could not. The table, at my out-of-character suggestion, reeled at me. The dungeon master chuckled, commenting on how questionable it was I could ever even think of a scenario as so twisted. But he allowed it. Most of the party had left via the tunnels. Aether was leaving just before Thorgan and John and their new prisoners. She peered around the corners of the tunnel, and nobody could see her. With the flick of her wrist, she withdrew her wand of entanglement, a spoil from an earlier session, and cast it right at the entrance to the escape tunnels. The kobolds were trapped on the other side, but so were the two of her party members. Aether had faith in them, and I had faith in my fellow players. The grasping weeds and veins sprung up from the ground. Several kobolds had a look of horror on their faces. The smoke was getting thicker, too thick to breathe. Aether left, casting a quick glance at Thorgan and John on her way. They knew undoubtedly it had been her to cast it. They had seen it many times before, the spells sprouting from her wand. But she didn't care. The kobolds couldn't get out. They just couldn't. But I really wanted those little creatures to win. And they did. Thorgan and John both took deep breaths as they began inhaling the smoke. They rushed them out the best they could, chopping through the vines. Thorgan refused to leave a single one behind. He was steadfast in this. He couldn't leave those who had surrendered to die where they had laid down their weapons. It took some time, and Aether was quite unhappy about it. Eventually, another dwarf in the party, a fighter, was dragging her unwillingly out of the tunnels. The kobolds were freed. They won. Aether lost. Prejudice lost. The big, strong, overpowering dominant of society lost and the marginalized kobolds beat her. Aether may have been disappointed, but I was elated. As the session drew to an end, I apologized multiple times about the horrible decision I had made in character. Everyone said not to worry. It was exactly what my character would do, and it was dirty. But it was interesting and only added to our session. The players and the dungeon master did not know what they personally gave me, though. They gave me hope. Hope that there were some people like them in the world, privileged individuals who would fight tirelessly for the marginalized folks like me and many others. They wouldn't give up. So why should I? 
Tuesday nights at Dueling Grounds are a sanctuary to me. Over time, I realized how it was that for many people. People struggling to pay bills, people who are fed up with their weeks, individuals struggling with their mental health, others who had too many barriers to engage socially. This place was for all of us. It was a place of togetherness. Adventures League, in combination with an inclusive store, brought over 40 individuals in a small city together, giving us something to look forward to every week. Giving us a place where we could escape, and a game where we could be whoever we wanted to be. If you want to hear more from Misty, check out her podcast, Ladies Slaying Dragons, which releases new episodes every Sunday. You can also find her on Twitter, prodding the D&D community with thoughtful questions, at Misty Vander. Thank you, Misty, Fenway, Deb, and Claire so much for sharing your stories with Behold Her. And thank you, dear listener. If you like what you heard, there are a few ways you can make Behold Her even better. You can share your stories or suggest a guest at beholdherpodcast.com. You can also fill out a listener survey this April at don'tsplitthepodcastnetwork.com slash listener dash survey and be entered to win a free copy of Tomb of Annihilation. Behold Her will be back in May talking all things actual play. That means women who star in games, produce games, and even write PhDs about games. See you then.